Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. It is a fine Sunday. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, pal? I'm very good, thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is your birthday. It's a bit weird. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Lauren, how are you going? I'm good. Well, I'm jet lagged, but I'm good. I'm awake. Yeah, what's, what's, where were you? <laughs> I've just been in the US. So I just got back yesterday. Ah. Right. Mm. Well, I had the, uh... the, the, the typical US experience of being in Detroit where it was minus two and about two foot of snow and then went to San Francisco where it was 22 degrees yes. and then back to here. And back to here and you're probably freezing. Probably the same. And, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that's not so bad. That's true. not so bad. That's true. In the studio with us though, we, we well, I should say we've got four guests today, so mm-hmm. we're going to get straight into them because uh, we've got a lot to talk about. But uh, in the studio with us, first all is uh, Dr. Simon Corey. He's a senior lecturer in the chemical engineering department at Monash University and part of the ARC Centre for Bio Nanoscience. Welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, we, we got uh, some information about your work during the week, which I thought was just fascinating. And I think we should start off by talking about the real um, reason you're doing some of this work, and that is around this particular infection that people get. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to use the word catheter because it makes me squirm. But uh, <laughs> um, there, there's, there's, so tell us about this. This is something that uh, bacteria that we have in our bodies generally that doesn't cause any problems. Yeah, that's right. So, so there's lots of Uh, you know, bacteria and microbes that we have in and on our bodies all the time. And for those of us who are, you know, healthy, um, there's no problem. You know, they they live happily. They're part of our, you know, flora and fauna and there's no issues. But for if people, if people are immunosuppressed, so for example, people who are getting, who who have, um, you know, blood tumors, leukemias, lymphomas, or if they're, you know, getting treatment for something like HIV, their, their systems are really immunosuppressed. In those people, some of these infections, um, you know, some of these microbes can actually become pathogenic and, mm. and cause infections. Okay. And and for people in hospital um, getting treatment for those sort of infections, a lot of the time that those, you know, that, that they can be introduced to some of these nasty bugs is through, you know, medical devices and maybe catheters and or other lines. So that's that's where it all started. And and how does it get on the medical devices? Is it sort of on our bodies or on other people's bodies or because these things are usually coming out of sterile sort of packaging or in yeah so it's 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 often i mean you know when you when you insert a catheter you know you're actually you're you're pushing it into the skin and through mm-hmm. into the into the vein so so it's it's often what's on your skin right um but it yep. can also be for example um you know i, I was fascinated by a, a doctor who told me at one stage that you know when you brush your teeth you actually get, you know, a spike in your blood bacteria levels because, wow. you know, you, mm. you, you, you're, you know, sort of breaking little vessels in your mouth and all that sort of stuff. So, so there's all sorts of ways that those bacteria could actually get into your bloodstream. And as I say, it's not normally a problem for healthy people, but for people who are really immunosuppressed, it yeah. can be a real problem. And, and when you say real problem, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Are we talking about mortality or are we talking about just, you know, infections that go on for a while? What? Yeah, so, so I guess in, in you know, Places like Australia, where we've got wonderful, you know, healthcare access to healthcare and tertiary hospitals, you know, the mortality rates, uh, you know, are relatively low. Mm. But 
you, you know, the estimates that we've seen from the literature, um, you know, is between, say, 10 and 50 percent, depending on where you are. So for those, for those people who are, you know, as I say, those, especially those hematological patients with, you know, leukemias and lymphomas, if mm. they get one of these infections, it is, it's a medical emergency. Yep. And so, you know, that's, and that's how it's treated. Pretty so it stuff. is very serious. Yeah. Now, now you're, you're not in a medical part of the university. You're in the um, sort of chemical engineering part. So yes. nanotechnology is a solution to this. What, what exactly are you doing there? Because this, yeah. I mean, we, we've heard about nanotechnology, but, you know, for 20, 30 years at yes. least, uh, from the days of Fantastic Voyage with Raquel Welsh. Yep. I think that's where it started Absolutely. for me. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> yep. Sorry, I just got a bit sidetracked by Raquel Welsh. Um, but uh, but, but what, what's going on there? I mean, what, what are we doing with nanotechnology in mm. order to sort of combat what is, you know, as you say, quite a, quite a problematic virus? Yeah, so, bacteria? I mean, there's a, there's a huge wealth of, you know, research around nanotechnology applied in, in biomedical problems. And there's also a lot of, you know, FDA and TGA approved uh, medicines that involve some kind of nanoparticle component. Mm. Mm. And, and, you know, so there could be imaging agents, you know, drugs and therapies whole whole bunch of things i guess with the with the infections i guess some some um conditions uh, often cancer uh, is a, is a leading area in which nanotechnology has really been applied from a research and 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 also into the clinic um and infectious diseases is kind of is you know is i think is there's lots of opportunity there but there's been relatively less work going on in that space mm. and so i mean we when i joined monash a few years ago um, you know, one of the things you do as a new academic is meet like new people all the time. And one of the people I met was um, Professor Anna Traven in the um, um, Biomedicine Discovery Institute, and she's a microbiologist. Okay. So we started talking, and we found that we had things in common, and so we we started this kind of interdisciplinary project and found a student, and off we went. And it's been pretty great, uh, pretty interesting mm. voyage. <laughs> So um, one of the nanoparticles that I've heard a bit about in the past is silver and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that being able to be used for these sorts of indications. Is this what you're working with or are they new nanoparticles that you're developing? Yeah, we're, so we're actually working with, I mean, I'm an engineer and so I, I'm not necessarily always about trying to find the newest, most the newest nanoparticles. What we kind of do is try and work with materials that are robust you know, stable, scalable, things that we can use to make new technologies. So we actually work with silica and, mm -hmm. and, and modified versions of silica. Mm. Which and is just glass. Which is just glass, yeah. sand on the sand. beach, right? Yep. Um, but it's, there's a few reasons we do it. You can, you can change lots about silica very easily. You can change the surface chemistry. You can change, you know, pores in the, in the materials. You can, you can put layers and different things on there. And so you can do lots of different things that you can't necessarily do with other materials. Silver and gold have been used quite a bit in sort of developing antibacterial materials and and people have put them into into clothing and people have yeah. tried to look at what happens in response to cells and things like that yeah so, so one of the things that always fascinates me and you know starting off somewhat in this field my, myself of nanotechnology is that the parameters of these materials change once you get down to that scale so you know yeah. you take gold and it doesn't do the things gold does yeah. when you get down to this nanoparticle scale are you using any of those special features in this sort of work? Because that, that, that to me is the thing that really opens up some new doorways. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, there are some interesting things there. So, for example, um, with, the, with the pathogen that we've been working on with Professor Traven, Candida albicans, it has this, it has this wall that things should not be able to get through. Mm, they really shouldn't. Right. 
But we found sort of surprisingly that some of our particles that are relatively much bigger than what should be able to get through the wall, they seem to be able to get through and access drug targets below the wall. Mm. And we don't really know why that is. There's some, and other groups have found that some, some nanomaterials which are much smaller or much bigger can and you know some do and some don't actually get through and access this drug so this is an interesting problem that we kind of want to look at a bit further because Mm -hmm. the wall of these of these microbes um, makes them quite unique and makes them quite hard to treat sometimes so the fact that some get in and some don't and it's not always dependent on size it's dependent on some other properties maybe how stiff they are um, their surface chemistry etc so there's lots of lots of interesting things that go on at the nanoscale for sure interesting so that point probably really gets to my next question, which is what do these nanoparticles actually do? Are we asking them to destroy the cells themselves mm. or do they carry a drug or some other form of treatment? Well, this is so what we what we actually found when we first got together and started this project was that with Canada albicans and other fungal pathogens, which are really, you know, they're slow growing, but they, they you know, so that they're very difficult to detect in sort of classic, um, classic clinical methods. Um, we found that not many people had done any fundamental work on, you know, how nanoparticles interact with these cells. And so that's, that's what we really focused this PhD project on in the first little while um, before we kind of decide, okay, well, you know, this, we might be able to start making a sensor out of this or we might be able to start, you know, coding catheters to, to, with, with antifungal nanoparticles, for example. Mm-hmm. So we found that these, the nanoparticles that we use at least seem to, they do associate with with the, the 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 microbe in in blood and media solutions they don't seem to kill it they don't seem to stop it growing but then if we change the surface so if we put an antifungal drug on the surface then they really do start to kill mm-hmm. so and then what we also did was if you're going to use these in a medical context then you also need to make sure that these particles aren't toxic to blood cells and things like that Mm. so we also took these particles and said okay well we'll 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 you know we'll mix them with the with the bug and see what they do but we'll also mix them with fresh human blood and different sort of blood cells and try and find out you know do they associate or kill human blood cells Mm. and we found that there was a relationship between size and chemistry but we found that there are actually you know a group of you know particles of a certain size and shape that don't seem to really um, kill human cells at all, mm-hmm. but they can still be made to interact interact with and or kill the the fungi. So that's pretty exciting. And, and so, I mean, when you're dealing with particles of that size, how do you know at the end of the day, you know, when the job's done, that you've got them out? You know, how do you know that there isn't a buildup of nanoparticles in the body in yes. you know in the in the pancreas or, or yeah, you know, we, we yeah, hear this a lot yeah. about microplastics, but yes. you know, in this case, they're so small. How do you know that they're gone? Oh, that's that's a really good point. So, I mean, we do you know then we've we've done a little bit of this work now, and it's it's kind of the next step, and that is you know introducing these materials into into um, preclinical animal trials and seeing mm. where they go so we've done a little bit of this work and so if we for example put them into uh, you know the location where a catheter would be in the subcutaneous tissue they seem to stay there they don't seem to move around they don't okay. diffuse away but you know you never know where they go and so there's this there's this um, ongoing debate in the sort of nanomedicine area where we sort of say well you know do we do we want this thing to stay around and keep doing its job for a long period of time or does staying around for a long period of time risk 
you know toxicity and so do we want mm. to design them so that they actually fall apart and get you know get excreted from the right. body in a certain time so that's that's always part of the discussion yeah interesting yeah so, so following on from shane's question i mean do we have a sufficient time series to look at you know the short-term impacts of these things versus long term so you mentioned of course it it doesn't appear to be lethal um, for cells but i mean do we know about sublethal effects and do we know about whether there's any you know uh, i guess effects that might pop up you know after some period of time that we can't detect at the moment so do we have a time series to look at these things or is it just too early days to know what potential longer term effects might be yeah it's i mean it's it's very early days in terms of our work um we know we've got some colleagues in the us um who have actually used almost exactly the same material and they've they've actually done phase one and two um human trials yep where they've you know injected these particles into people and because because the silica is very not as i say you can do a lot yeah. with it yeah. so they load it with pet agents or fluorescent agents so they can see where yep. it all goes and then they've sort of you know found no adverse no adverse effects they've seen total clearance from the body yep. from these particles so you know there's 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 some things that um, so we've certainly got to uh, to look into further from our particular materials but there's encouraging results around the world from people who are doing similar work great simon look it's fascinating talking about this and it's great to hear that uh, you know chemical engineering and the biosciences they're coming together to solve these sorts of problems because they're quite significant and i think you know this alternative approach to just more antibiotics and you know the, the the standards of approach is a really good way to go. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today on Einstein and Gogo, and uh, good luck with the work. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio is Dr. Lauren and Dr. Ewan, but we have on the phone Professor Mike Archer, who is from the University of New South Wales. Mike, can you hear us? I sure can, Shane. Thanks for uh, taking the call today. It's, it's great to chat to you about this topic because it's one we've had a number of guests on the, uh, in the studio over the years. The mountain pygmy possum, which we all know is endangered at the moment and is in, in serious strife. Can you just give us a quick rundown of, of this particular animal, uh, where it's located and, and what the sort of numbers are looking like at the moment before we get into it? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a very um, dangerous situation, I'm afraid. Uh, these little guys are in the alpine areas of Victoria and New South Wales, very limited areas. At the moment, there are about 2,500 of them, but the numbers are fluctuating wildly. And uh, on the current estimates, just two years in a row of minimal uh, snowfalls uh, could cause them to go extinct. So mm. everyone's pretty nervous about this. And what's so critical about the snowfall levels? I, I know they, they hibernate in winter, that's right, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. It's quite interesting. That's one of their survival strategies mm. in this extreme environment. They need that snowfall to give them insulation because without that snow cover, uh, with the cold temperatures that are in the alpine area, the cold air will creep down into their little rock piles and, and uh, cause them to wake up periodically, shiver, lose lots of body weight, and probably lose the ability to survive. And when, when you talk about the locations that they're found in, these locations seem to be separated. Are they, my, my understanding was they're, they're almost getting to the point of not being able to breed between these various locations. Is that, is that correct? No, as far as I know, that's not correct. Right. There are some genetic differences because of the isolation. They, yep. They've been separated, say, in the two states for uh, maybe even as much as 50,000 years. Wow. There will be genetic differences, but not enough to stop them into breeding. Mm. And... In terms of the, um, the these changing snowfalls, what what sort of 
range, I suppose, in these mountain regions do we find them in? Because we, we all know that these, these sort of lower levels of where the snowfalls are occurring now is changing quite radically. I mean, I can imagine a scenario where from one summer to the next, you literally go from there being snow over a 100-metre range to none at all. So where, where, you know, how, how spread out are they? Yeah, well, that's actually a very interesting question. I, I'm not sure that we're entirely confident that we know populations of this possum. Um, just recently, a couple of years ago, a population was discovered about 500 meters lower on the mountains than anybody thought was possible, and almost below the snow line. So I, I think with there, there's still some information to be gained here. There's even rumors of uh, some rainforest areas on Mount Kosciuszko mm. that may be harboring populations that we haven't yet discovered. Yeah. Now, Mike, you've been looking at some of the fossil record and looking some 25 million years ago. How does that help us today with the mountain pygmy possum? Yeah, Shane, that, that's one of the most interesting things. I've been sort of um, hammering on about this for about 15 years now. When we began to realize that finding fossils, which is an awful lot of fun, actually had some messages for us about ways we might uh, conserve endangered species today that ecologists hadn't thought about because we tend to think that we need to understand where they are today and what, they, what do they need now to survive, and that if that is going to change, we figure they're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. But we've been finding in the fossil record that for 25 million years, this lineage, which is a very specialized, narrow group of possums, has always been living in cool-temperate, lowland rainforest. Wow. Our argument is that uh, that resilience, that ability to be happiest in that kind of an environment is probably still in the genome of these animals, which are probably by accident stranded in the alpine area. They may have followed rainforest up the mountains during a, a more equitable climatic period and then got stuck there. So they're just hanging on by the skin of their little possum teeth, and they'd be, we think, much happier if they were back in their ancestral comfort zone. Uh, Mike, it's Lauren here. Look, I'm really intrigued. Uh, it's obviously fascinating being able to look back in history like this. So do we know when it was that they actually got stranded in that alpine region? No, Lauren, that, that's an interesting question. The, the precision of that is not clear. We do know that during the Pleistocene, i.e. the Ice Ages, mm-hmm. there have been uh, lots of fluctuations, climatic fluctuations, in which wet forests would have been going up the mountains and then retreating and going up the mountains and back again every time you have one of these changes. And we think possums, maybe corroboree frogs, maybe a whole range of lowland animals actually swept up the mountains in these more equitable times. But exactly when that happened, we're not sure. It could have been as much as 2 million years ago. It could have been as little as 50,000 years ago. We're just not sure. Great. Hi, Mike. It's uh, Ewan here. Um, I guess I guess one of the challenges we have with mountain pygmy possums, and in fact many other species, is that they are endangered, and we don't have very many of them, therefore. And so if we are to sort of, I guess, do a, a, an experiment where we potentially you know, um, translocate some to a different habitat to see if they can survive there, that that's risky, but I guess it's also what remains uncertain is what what threats might exist in, in those other habitats we move them to. So have you done much sort of thinking about how we could mitigate or manage that risk if we did sort of go down the path of a trial translocation to see if pygmy possums could in fact survive at these lower elevation areas? Yeah, you and that's a really good series of questions. Risk management has to be one of the factors here. Of course, the biggest risk is to leave them alone because everybody's saying that environment is going to collapse and it's going to happen fast. Yeah. So we see this as a lesser risk. And, of course, we're only talking about taking a small uh, group of these animals, maybe no more than about uh, two dozen individuals, um, from a population of 2,500. 
And, and while the populations are that large, this is the time to consider these trial experiments rather than wait, as we all did for Tulak wallabies, until the populations were so small there was no way there was a, this was going to succeed. We do know that people have kept them, these Burmese, the mountain pygmy possums, in lowland environments at ambient temperatures, and they have survived. They haven't had to hibernate, and they've bred. So we already have um, a lot of experience in knowing that this should work without any problem. Mike, one of the things that I, I'm not sure you, you're able to pull this out of the the actual fossil record, but in terms of the, you, you mentioned that they have somewhere in their genome, they have the capacity to survive in these different areas. Do we know how long it would take them as a species to adapt back to that? I mean, is there an understanding that it would happen immediately or would it be several generations? You know, what would that look like? Yeah, Shane, I think it would happen just about immediately. Mm. We do anticipate that um, in the construction of a breeding facility, one of the major goals here is to use that opportunity to help acclimatize them to anticipated release areas. So we would introduce them to uh, new kinds of foods and uh, the climatic conditions that they would be finding in the new area. But having seen the experience that people have had in the past, including Hillsville, where they used to have an ambient colony, mm. um, working at uh, just normal temperatures for Eelsville, um, they did breed in that situation and they didn't hibernate. So, you know, within one generation, um, these adaptations are there. We think that the genome is, is infinitely more resilient than we otherwise might have suspected. Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating about this is I was not aware that uh, many, many animals were actually capable of hibernation. Is, is that something that a lot of animals do actually have within their genome to do? And these particular little guys have actually just, you know, utilized that as a survival technique or is it something quite unique? Yeah, isn't that a fascinating question? Um, Fritz Geiser, who is one of the authors on our paper, um, just out of curiosity, did an experiment with an ordinary common pygmy possum, Circuitus mm -hmm. nanus. That doesn't normally hibernate, but he actually dropped the temperatures in the laboratory colony um, down to the temperature where an animal might hibernate if it could, and suddenly they did. Wow. And not only that, what he found was um, he kept them down at that temperature for nearly 12 months, which is not a normal period that you'd have to hibernate for. And when they slowly raised the temperature, out came these happy little pygmy possums, you know, saying, I'm hungry, feed me. <laughs> and they were so I think you're right. There, there is a resilience in a lot of animals that the modern situations we find them in um, just doesn't give us any idea about. And um, this is the key to survival for a lot of species is an innate um, resilience to deal with changes in environments. Normally, this would happen over thousands of years, but, of course, we're not we're not giving them that kind of time. This is going to happen within decades at, at most. So we have to hope that that is there. So, Mike, it's my understanding that you've, this is happening. So you've got a couple of breeding pairs that are at a lower um, altitude now so that you can start to see if this works. One thing that I'm really interested in, you touched on before, about you know they're going to obviously um, have new types of predators around, but I'm also thinking about food. So you know what they would eat at that level, I'm assuming, is different. Do you have to kind of phase and change their diet slowly as well? I think probably one of the things that's misled us a bit is that the foods that are available to them at the moment in the alpine zone are quite restricted. Mm. Um, so it's not surprising that everyone makes a simple assumption that they need those specific foods. But the captive individuals have showed remarkable resilience in the kind of foods they're happy with. And I know in, 
in the Heelsville situation, one of the keepers told me they commonly fed them on walnuts, but it's not exactly a natural food either. But I think we're finding most Australian animals, in my experience, and I've kept a lot of them, are what you'd call opportunistic omnivores. They tend to uh, focus on foods that are good for them. If it's not a food that they are um, used to eating, but it's a good food, they'll quite happily shift their focus onto these other foods. So I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think that innate resilience of omnivory uh, will come to the fore. But we do intend to introduce them to the kinds of foods they would find in their new environments. I don't think, you know, going back to your question about the carnivores and the the animals they're going to meet in that kind of new environment, one of the things that came out of our studies of the fossil record um, spanning that last 25 million years, they've always been in highly biodiverse communities with filled with all kinds of carnivores, herbivores. In fact, if there's any correlate here, it's that high biodiversity environments are the ones that seem to be um, the most suitable for these mountain pygmy possums or for this lineage. So we, do, we think it's, it's a vacant niche at the moment in these lowland rainforests, and, and putting them back into those environments is going to be slipping a, a hand back into a glove. It's a vacant niche that I think um, is just waiting for them to come back. Mm. Mike, it's uh, it's fascinating this work, and I, I suspect uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learnt from our previous attempts at this. And I, I was just down in Tasmania over the weekend, and I was surprised to actually see in a, a sanctuary there a Tasmanian devil, because I thought the only place I saw those these days was in Hillsville Sanctuary. So, um, you know, that's I think that's another example where there's been quite a substantial effort made. So, in this case, look, uh, whatever path you take, I hope um, the outcome here is that we manage to maintain. Uh, a population of the mountain pygmy possum because it's something that's you know seriously under threat and that snow line's going to keep changing as we know so good luck with the work and uh keeps posted we'd love to talk about this again thank you shane yes we're all got our fingers crossed but we're actually quietly confident that this will work yeah look it sounds fascinating and it's great to great to see so much of the fossil record sort of helping us with these sorts of decisions thanks so much for chatting to us today and uh, we'll chat to you again fine Thank you, Professor Mike Archer there uh, from the University of New South Wales. In the studio with us now is Thomas Rosbroy. He is from, he's a postdoctoral fellow in the Monash Department of Clin- Clinical Epidemiology in the Cabrini Institute. Thomas, welcome to the Triple R Studio. It's really awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Now, you work in the area of vaccinations, or more correctly, in why people choose to perhaps vaccinate or not vaccinate, and why there's this sort of real, sort of, I guess it's a growing issue of people refusing vaccinations. It, I mean, how do you go about um, analysing that? I mean, what, what's, do, are you talking to the people who are refusing vaccinations or are you collecting data? What's, what's the approach to this? Yeah, absolutely. So it's self-reported research. So we're talking attitudes, experiences, um, social science, so mm-hmm. um, associations rather than causation. But maybe it'd be interesting for me to tell you a bit about why we took the direction we did. Yeah, yeah, So absolutely. imagine that two people read a bit of information that says that vaccines are a bad idea. Okay. One yep. person reads it and goes rubbish, moves on, keeps vaccinating. Mm-hmm. The other person reads it and thinks, yeah, this looks like a good idea. Maybe I'll read further or maybe I'll forego the measles vaccine. Hmm. So why is it that the second person looked at that and yeah. came to that conclusion? So the whole project for me was really looking at the broader stuff. You know, what is it about you that makes that makes you look at that information and start questioning. So mm. we looked at broader ideas, broader experiences, identities, how you engage with 
healthcare systems. Yep. And it's almost like treating vaccine refusal as a symptom, which is oversimplified, but a useful way to do research. Yeah. So in in terms of that, I mean, there's there's obviously there's so much that goes into that decision making process for a person. I mean, their their education, their background, what they've been exposed to, their recent interactions with the medical system. You know, like they may be biased against it if they've had a bad interaction. How do how do you factor all that into this? Well, it's messy. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no there's no two ways about it. So, for example, we've got a lot of parents saying I've experienced vaccine injuries to my child. Now, what are, how are they interpreting that? Are they already worried about vaccination and then yeah. they see their child cry and they interpret that as a vaccine injury? Is something actually happening? And the truth is we can't really unpick it unless we, with a single study, you know, we're so slowly chipping away. So, um, sorry, when you say vaccine injury, is that is that a, t- I haven't heard that term before. What does that, what does that mean? Really? So that's a term that a lot of people that refuse vaccines would use. Yep. So actually um, a lot of people, I mean, very few people have a negative reaction to a vaccine. Mm. Very, very, very few people have a serious negative reaction to a vaccine. Okay. Um, but there's a prominent discourse amongst people who refuse vaccines saying that kids becoming permanently harmed by vaccines is a common occurrence. Um, and it's interesting to try and work out why they're seeing that because it doesn't really correspond to the statistics out there. Yeah. One, one of the things I find curious is to me, and we've talked about this a lot on the air over, over the years, is to me the real reason for getting vaccinated in a scenario where I'm unlikely to get polio anymore in my environment, but someone who is immune compromised in some way relies on me to be responsible with my vaccinations because they can't have them. Uh, How does that factor into this? Because it doesn't seem to me as though much in the way of communication has been coming out over the years to parents saying, hey, you know, this is not just about your own child. This is actually about a lot of the children who can't who can't be vaccinated. I think we've had a bit of discourse around sort of, you know, doing it for the community. Yeah. And interestingly, we see in the research that people who don't vaccinate are less likely. They're more individualist focused. They're less sort of community focused. Right. Um, but it's it's also not the whole story if you just tell people you need to do this for those who are immunocompromised or too young or too sick. Yeah. Because unless you communicate that right, people who refuse vaccines will go, well, why should I put my child at risk? For yours. For yours. Because they're we, seeing the risk. Out of this. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the key thing there. They're seeing risk. If I told you, you know, if you eat an orange, you'll be immune to polio. I don't think anybody would question it. It's, it's this underlying idea that there's something wrong with the vaccine, that's something dangerous about the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, so going I got back to Shane's point before about, you know, whether they've had a bad experience with just medicine in general. I mean, do they do they have, a I guess, a, a different view on, on the whole medical field in general? Or is it like, can they sort of separate the two? So they say, well, I'm not going to have a vaccination, but I'm still going to get treatment for this, you know, in a conventional way. So do you see differences in that way as well between people who choose vaccination or don't? Or or is that messy as well? It's certainly messy. Um, So on the one hand, we see people who refuse vaccines continue to use other parts of medicine. Mm. On the other hand, we see a relationship where if you refuse vaccines, you're also more likely to refuse other treatments. So... It's too simple to say that if you refuse vaccines, you refuse everything else, but there's definitely a relationship. Yeah. So one of the things always comes up, obviously, when we have this discussion was that, you know, paper in, I think it was 98 in Lancet from Andrew Wakefield, um, which most of our listeners will be aware of. So he, he basically published that um, that one of these vaccines was linked to 
autism. And that has well and truly been disproved. So every single study since then has disproved that. You know, his results have been retracted. The paper was retracted. But I do find it interesting. I've had discussions with people who won't vaccine their children and they still talk about that paper. So it it always intrigues me. Did you find that when you were talking to people? Did they bring up that particular piece of disproved evidence? Yeah, absolutely. And even more, I mean, there's been some studies in the 70s that were worried that the Petrosis vaccines vaccine um, causes some serious health issues, and that's been debunked, and that still comes up. Mm. In, um, mm. I think it's really difficult to pinpoint why that's happening. You know, we've had, I can't remember how many now, I think maybe 11 really comprehensive systematic studies showing that mm-hmm. there's no link between autism and the MMR vaccine. Mm-hmm. And yet it still keeps coming up. And why is a really interesting interesting question and i think it's kind of about the mode that we enter a piece of information the the mode that we engage with a piece of information in Mm. you know how willing are we to to listen which heuristics are we applying but it's so tough to unpick that yeah it's fascinating to me because i wonder how much it is the scientific community in some ways losing its credibility in some areas so for example we hear this all the time. This is partly the general media doing this. But, you know, coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you. Mm. Coffee's mm. good for you, coffee's bad for you. You get to a point where you say, well, you know, yeah, they said that that vaccine wasn't a problem then, but then, then there was this paper that, you know, so at what point is it going to swing back? And if you're just a general member of the public and you're not sure how science as, a, as an entity itself works, how it progresses through falsification, through us making corrections to previous work, that could be discouraging. I mean, do you, do you think that plays into this? Because it seems to me as though, you know, we... Like, if you said to me today, is coffee good for me? I couldn't actually tell you. I couldn't tell you. I've heard so Definitely. many, so many different reports. I just don't know. <laughs> Are we losing our credibility a bit there? Is that part of it? As somebody that's had a triple shot on the way here, I can say that's definitely <laughs> good for you. No question. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's that. I think science is unsatisfying in many ways like Mm. even this you know we've got a bit of evidence now and maybe in 10 years you know the evidence is going to become updated and it creates this kind of uncertainty and also don't this is a dangerous thing to say on a science show but i think for many people science isn't as sexy as the sort of emotional hit you'll get from somebody going on like somebody that you know saying you know this is how my child cried yeah, this yeah. is the intensity yeah. of the emotion I experienced. Yeah, uh, I people, think it's really people, tough to... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people remember emotions and narratives. They don't remember facts. Mm. You know? and, and we often are very good at giving facts. And yes. it doesn't often doesn't work that well. Yeah, so I guess my question now, will, will you be using this information from this study to maybe then take a second step, which is saying, okay, well, there, there tends to be some people who might be thinking along these lines. What if we try a different communication approach? What if we even explain what science actually is, right? That... Science is the best process we have for getting close to the truth. We'll never know what truth is 100%. That's not how science works, but it gets us close there, right? It's probably the best way we have of approaching that. But So if we could sort of, I guess, propose a study where you try and, you know, approach communication differently, um, educate people about what science actually is versus what people might think it is, is that a sort of a second follow-on from this study so that you could sort of get to maybe, I mean, understanding better how people's views may change given different information or communicated in a different way? You've hit the nail on the head there, actually. So I think once somebody's already down the path of refused vaccines, they've probably read so much on the internet, they've done heaps, they're really committed to this position, realistically, it's going to be incredibly difficult to change their mind. Mm. I think what we really need here is almost a prevention approach where 
coming back to that example I said at the start, where you have two people that look at the same bit of information, one of them finds it compelling. We need to almost educate people in a way that that piece of false information linking vaccines to say MMR, mm. MMR vaccine to say autism doesn't become appealing. So yeah. how you do that is tough because I think science literacy is a part of the part of it. Yeah. Um, trust in the institutions, you know, is it the whole story? I'm not so sure, but really understanding what mm. the whole story is, is I think the next step. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like prevention is certainly better than trying to fix it later. So, um, Thomas, thanks so much for coming and chatting to this. This is a topic we've talked about many times on the show, and it's one that I think we need to keep keep talking about because obviously it's a very big problem and it's becoming a bigger problem, believe it or not, as we move into the future. But thanks for being a guest today on Einstein and Gogo. That was great. Thank you. Thomas Rosbroy is a postdoctoral fellow from the Monash Department of Clinical Epidemiology. There you are listening to 3RRR in the uh, studio with me is Ewan and Lauren. And on the phone, hopefully, we have Amanda McKenzie, CEO of the Climate Council. Amanda, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Excellent. Now, it's, I suspect it's been a big week for you. Yeah, it has been a big week. Um, it's obviously um, there terrible circumstances with the fires burning um, throughout New South Wales, Queensland, mm. and South Australia and WA. Um, but I think it's been an important week in terms of the discussion on climate change. Yeah, so in, in terms of that, I, I noticed in your press release you really were focusing somewhat on the the way in which we are currently responding to to communities and how they deal with this bushfire threat. I mean, you've also got a lot in there around climate as well, but this sort of response that we have and how we're going to go about that. Do you want to speak a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So... Um, the reality is that the climate is changing and has changed significantly. So the unprecedented fires that we've um, seen in the last week, uh, and it's obviously only November, that the whole summer is very concerning in terms of the forecast. So we're expecting to see um, pretty terrible conditions in many parts of Australia, particularly across the southeast. Um, so. What we're saying is that we need to prepare for worsening fire conditions. That means we need to make sure our fire services are resourced to tackle those fires. It means that our health services need to understand the threat and communities need to understand how fire is changing. Um, and, of course, we then need to tackle climate change, the root cause of why these events are getting more um, more dangerous. Mm. Are we seeing the threat of bushfires going into areas that have never been affected by it before? Is that part of it at the moment? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. So um, in Tasmania and Queensland and parts of New South Wales, it's wet forests, rainforests that have been burning, um, which is part of why it's unprecedented. And we've had very dry conditions. Um, this is the worst drought on record for much of Queensland and New South Wales, which has dried out vegetation, dried out soils. But that's part of a long-term drying trend as well. So across the southeast of Australia, um, particularly through the cool season rainfall, there's been a decline of the last 30 years. You couple that with increasing heat, which can lead to more evaporation, you get a, a recipe for hotter, drier conditions. So even in some areas like rainforests, we're seeing an encroachment of fires. And rainforests tend to um, stop fires because they are wet. But each time you get a fire that then penetrates the rainforest by you know a few hundred metres, it means the next time there's a fire, it can go further into it. Mm. So some of these fires that have been burning in um, some of these more wet forests in um, New South Wales and Queensland, the worry is that it, um, those, fire, those forests aren't used to burning regularly. Um, so it changes the nature of those forests over time. 
Yeah. One of the things I found interesting, you know, with all the various political discussions and so forth this week is even if people were to go with the idea that the current situation is not caused by climate change, to me, the part that's truly scary is that these things will, we know they will get worse. So we'd be talking about worse than this week, which seems to me somewhat terrifying. Oh, it is terrifying. Like a million um, hectares has already been burnt. Um, to such a huge area and there's one of the fires, I think it's the one near Coffs Harbour, the perimeter of a thousand kilometres. Like these are just enormous areas and if you look down the coast of New South Wales to see where the um, fires are burning, it's like a lot of those national parks are burning now mm. and state forests and you just think, well, it's still only some, not even the start of summer. So it is terrifying what's already happening. So I think that it should be a massive wake-up call to to not just the federal government, but all governments. It should yep. be a wake-up call to business. Everyone has a role to play in tackling this problem. And if we haven't seen federal government action that um, meets our needs, which it just hasn't, then it's up to everyone else to start stepping up too. Yeah, indeed. In, in terms of the fires themselves, one of the things we hear about a lot is the role of CO2 in changing climate and so forth, and that therefore leads to these worsening fires. But what do the fires themselves do in terms of, you know, Australia's CO2 footprint? Because it seems to me as though you're putting a monstrous amount of CO2 into the atmosphere as a result of, you know, this effect, which then, you know, cycles back again. Yeah, so it is true that you release a whole lot of carbon when you um, have a fire, but then as the forest regenerates and there's a lot of um, new vegetation, that absorbs a lot of carbon too. So what we describe in terms of uh, vegetation-based carbon is it over time it, it might burn, it might rot. So there's carbon going in and out of the atmosphere over time. But what coal, oil and gas is, is trees and animals that have been compressed for millions and millions of years that are now being burned. So they're new carbon, if you like. So um, we do, the land-based carbon, it's important to be capturing as much as we can in the landscape and in the ocean for as long as possible because we're tackling this climate change challenge. But the most important thing is to limit fossil fuels because they're adding new carbon to the system. So the policies that the government currently has in place through the Emissions Reduction Fund, they're mainly all centred on land-based carbon, which doesn't tackle the key issue, which is fossil fuel-based carbon. Yep. So that's why the argument is there that we need to be phasing out the burning of coal, oil and gas as rapidly as possible. Amanda, it's Lauren here. Look, I think um, most of our listeners are well aware of the Climate Council and the amazing work you guys do. Um, I think probably also a lot of our listeners are also feeling like I am, which is incredibly frustrated that, you know, you're you're not being listened to. So I guess, um, you know... How how can we help? You know, how do, how does everyone help this? So you have world leaders in your organisation, um, you know, and yeah, what can we what can we do more as a society? Well, I think that there's a lot that can be done. So, in in my view, the federal government has demonstrated that they will not lead on this issue, and they've you know, there's been lots of campaigns pushing for leadership for many years. So I think we've got to support where there is leadership in the community. So there's now a lot of local governments that are taking leadership on this issue. State governments, the government in Victoria is leading the federal government but could still do a lot more. And I think it's up to us as a community where that leadership, to push those that are taking leadership roles and then to ensure that those policies or projects get replicated in other parts. 
So, for instance, the South Australian government a couple of years ago invested in the big battery that Elon Musk, um, mm. the company yeah. Tesla, invested in. Now there's 16 other big batteries around the country mm. getting implemented. So that sort of leadership has then been copied in other places. Mm. So I think Victoria in particular should be um, you know, a world leader on climate change. We have a relatively progressive community. We're coming off a base where we've used a lot of brown coal, which is very, very polluting. And so I think as Victorians, we should be pushing the state government to really step up. We should be pushing our local councils to step up and thinking about your own sphere of influence. So it's not in, uh, like there's a lot of emphasis on changing your own household and people can do that. But ultimately, we want to be changing things as a community. So if you're in a business, how can your business be using more renewable energy or um, thinking about how it uses energy smarter? If you're in a school, how do you think about how your school can use energy differently? So it's thinking about how we can do things together and then how we can put pressure on um, local and state governments, which ultimately we want the federal government to follow behind. Mm. Amanda, look, it's it's really great to chat to you, and I'm, I'm glad to see that your recent briefing paper entitled This Is Not Normal has come out. I know many of the ones that have been put out have been ignored by government over the last decade, so hopefully this one will perhaps get a bit more notice, but I, I fear it will not. But I think your call for the community to attack this in different ways is a great one. Good luck with the ongoing battle. We are certainly here to support you in any way that we can at Triple R. So if you uh, need anything from us, please do let us know. And thanks so much for chatting to us today. Oh, thank you. Well, I would add one other thing, which yep. is that the fossil fuel industry is subsidised by $10 million a minute. Mm. And the Climate <laughs> Council's budget is $3.8 million a year. Oh. So if any listeners <laughs> are interested in donating to help us be more powerful, I'd really encourage you to go to our website and um, support us. Absolutely. We'd be very happy for our listeners to do that. Great, great point, Amanda. Thanks so much for your time and good luck with the ongoing fight. Thanks so much. That was Amanda McKenzie, CEO of the Climate Council. Jeez, it's a, it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't even know what to say. I don't, <laughs> so, I don't. It's funny, though, I think, because, Lauren, I liked your question because there's this whole thing of people feeling so overwhelmed that mm-hmm. they just don't know what to what to sort of put forward next and yep. what do you do next. But I think one of the things that I'd like to see everyone has to accept is that it's just going to cost you more to live. Yes. If you want to keep living the way you're living, mm-hmm. it, it has to cost mm. you more. Yep. And we often don't like putting our hand in our pocket you mm-hmm. know, when it comes to you. If I turned around and said, you, you know, coffee's going to cost you $9 from now on, mm-hmm. you'd grumble. But the realities yeah. are... That's kind of where we're at. Well, we also need to invest in keeping people safe. I mean, people have been warned about these fires happening it's by the fire time. chiefs and they've been yep. ignored and it happened and we're still sitting on our hands. So, you know, as you said, and as we discussed, it's going to get worse this summer. Yeah. How prepared are we? Not very well. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things uh, many listeners of the show would know that I do every year at the end of the year in the final show is I, I sort of say, you know, a big cheerio to all the CFA workers and stay safe over the summer in the upcoming bushfire season. Mm which it feels weird to be having to do that in November. Yeah. Um, Terrifying. We're, we're a lot a lot ahead of the game there. But to all of them out there, you know, keep up the good work. I think everyone forgets you're around in winter, but uh, boy, uh, do you... Amazing people. Earn, yes. earn your... Hang on, you're not paid. Earn your volunteer time <laughs> <laughs> over summer. So uh, we all appreciate that. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It, but uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gago. It's been a guest-filled day. A big thank you to all our guests. We will chat to you again next week. There's not that many weeks of the year left to go, but uh, we're going to fill them up with some really good science for you. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.